The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that operates internationally from bases in the UK and the US. Smarter Grid Solutions DERMS products, that's distributed energy resource management systems, are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets onto the grid and in the market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it's saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange. And if that's a little too long for you, just click the link in the show notes. If you have a great idea for a new cement chemistry and you bring that to a contractor or a structural engineer, there's a good chance that the response you're going to get is like, oh, that's super interesting. Why don't you build your bridge out of it and come back in 40 years and we'll take a look at how the bridge looks and then we'll talk. I promise you there is no better way to spend an hour than walking out on industrial decarbonization. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So this is a bit embarrassing, but I want to give you a small window into one of my personal quirks. Uh, Over the past year, along with many other people, particularly in the tech world, I've fallen in love with this digital note-taking system called Rome Research. It's become basically my full-stack knowledge management platform, and I use it for almost everything on a daily basis. This is not an ad for Rome Research, and I am not an investor, though I really wish that I were. But one of the cool things about Rome is that you can send messages to yourself in the future. So you make a note, you place a date on it in the future, and on that date, that note shows up for you in your daily notes page, which is part of your daily workflow. So I've started sending myself little reminders of things that I think I need to remember on some future day. And one of the ones that I've been sending to myself that shows up most often is just the phrase, do hard things. It's become my mantra, both for my own professional life, where I've never been one to take the easy road, but also for how I think about investing in climate tech, which is what I do. Solve a hard problem, and you have a big opportunity for both impact and for returns. Well, in the realm of climate change mitigation, there are a few harder things to do than to decarbonize industry. Industry represents over 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions when you add together direct process emissions and industrial energy use. And it's widely recognized as one of the most challenging sectors or suite of sectors to solve for a variety of reasons. I think this is also a huge opportunity. In the interest of full disclosure, I led EIP's investment a few months ago in a company called Boston Metal, which has a novel process to electrify and decarbonize steelmaking, which, as you'll hear, is the single largest source of industrial emissions in the world. But the need and the opportunity goes well beyond steel into cement and petrochemicals and much more. So let's dig in. 
This week, I spoke with Rebecca Dell, who's the director of the industry program at the Climate Works Foundation. She is, as you will soon hear, a deep expert on industrial emissions, both where they come from and how to get rid of them. So here we go. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. So we're here to talk about industrial greenhouse gas emissions, uh, their sources, their sinks, their solutions. Let's start by breaking down the big categories in the world of industrial GHG emissions. Like, what are the what are the biggest culprits? So the first thing to say is the industrial emissions are themselves really, really big. So if we just look at direct industrial emissions, which you can think of as like greenhouse gases that are coming out of smokestacks at factories, that's about a quarter of all greenhouse gases. If you add in the emissions that come from generating the electricity that is consumed by industrial facilities, that goes from a quarter up to a third, in fact, comfortably more than a third of all greenhouse gas emissions, all gases, all countries, everything. And these emissions are rising at about twice the rate of overall greenhouse gas emissions. Are they rising at twice the rate of overall greenhouse gas emissions uh, because overall industrial activity is increasing quickly on a global basis? Or is it because relative to other sectors where we've bent the curve to some degree, we have no solutions yet, at least at scale and industrial? I would say it's both, but it's more the former than the latter. We just make a lot more steel and a lot more cement and a lot more plastic than we used to, which actually leads me to the question you you asked, which is, who are the culprits? And the big three are the three I just named, steel, cement, and chemicals, of which the largest piece is plastic. And so those three sectors are responsible for about two-thirds of all direct industrial emissions. Which is amazing, given how many other industries there are out there. That's one thing I think about a lot is like, there are, you know, hundreds, thousands of different industrial processes producing different goods, but somehow these three, cement, steel, and petrochemicals, uh, are the ones where the majority of emissions come from. Yeah. So I would say there's two reasons for that. The first is that we make a lot of products, but there are very few products that we make in increments of billions of tons. Like we just make more cement than we make of anything else. Last year, we produced about 4 billion tons of cement globally, which is about a half a ton per person per year for every human being on the planet. That's like 1,200 pounds of cement per person for you, your grandchildren, your grandparents, everybody. We produced about 2 billion tons of steel, so about half of that. The other thing that is like all three of those industries, and in fact, all of the most greenhouse gas emissions intensive industries, full stop, are what we call primary commodity processing industries. So basically, you dig something out of the ground, and the first thing you do to it is where you get all the greenhouse gas emissions. And it makes sense because you're taking a raw material uh, and you're converting it into a useful molecule. And then all of the subsequent steps in your manufacturing chain and in your waste processing and all of that is basically you're like rearranging the size and arrangement and variety of those useful molecules. But all of that rearranging takes a lot less energy and requires a lot less 
and generates a lot less greenhouse gas than making the useful molecules in the first place. All right. So I think for good reason, there has been increasing attention paid over the past few years to those three sectors and to figuring out solutions for decarbonizing them. So I think what we want to do is run through each of them individually, look at where the emissions actually come from in that sector, what causes them, and then what the available or potentially soon to be available technologies are that might solve the problem. And then I think once we've done that, we could take a step back and we could say, all right, what's it going to take to create a market for all these new solutions or processes and ultimately decarbonize all of these sectors in addition to all the other industrial sectors. But let's start with cement. As you said, we produce half a ton of cement per person per year on a global basis. Where in the process of cement making are we emitting greenhouse gases? So the main ingredient in cement is lime or calcium oxide. The way that we get the lime is that we start with limestone which is calcium carbonate. You can hear right in the name. There's carbon in the limestone, but not in the lime. And so when we turn, when we dig limestone out of the ground, first of all, we wanna, when we convert the calcium carbonate into the calcium oxide, to do that, we have to cook it at over a thousand degrees Celsius. Um, and then there's all of this carbon that is coming out of the rocks and going into the atmosphere. So the CO2 is literally coming straight out of the rock when we make limestone or when we make cement. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, there's two different ways we're emitting greenhouse gases in that process. One is removing the carbon from the calcium carbonate, which then if you don't capture it, just goes into the atmosphere. But two is in order to heat it up to a thousand degrees Celsius, you know, historically, basically the only way that we can get those kinds of high heat temperatures are burning fossil fuels. You can burn other stuff, but yeah, the only every cement kiln in the world uses combustion. Some of them burn fossil fuels, some of them burn trash, some of them people burn a great a combination of things. But yeah, if you want to get to the temperatures that you need, the uh the only way that we do that in the cement industry today is by burning stuff. So those are two separate challenges to tackle. How do you get that level of heat and how do you avoid releasing all this carbon into the atmosphere when you convert calcium carbonate to calcium oxide? So, okay, let's start running through potential solutions. I'll let you pick your favorite to start. Yeah. So because there is this characteristic of the carbon dioxide coming straight out of the rocks, the place of all of the things that we do anywhere in our energy economy and anywhere in manufacturing or anything, the place where we're most likely going to end up to using carbon capture and storage as our primary pathway for reducing emissions is the cement industry. There are non-carbon capture options, which I'm happy to discuss, but probably it's going to end up being carbon capture and storage because if the CO2 is coming out of the rocks, there's like there's no amount of energy efficiency or clean energy in the world that's going to reduce those emissions. And it's more than half of all of the greenhouse gas emissions that come from the cement industry are, as I said, coming straight out of the rocks. They're what we call process emissions. Um, typically, cement is almost a ton of CO2 per ton of cement, and maybe 60% of that is the process emissions. 40% of that is coming from the energy. 
So there's lots of clever things you can do with your CCS, but good chance it's going to be CCS. Right. I mean, I think that's actually a key point of all sectors across all parts of the economy. You know, there's lots of discussion about carbon capture these days, and this is a form of you know, it could be offset through direct air capture or carbon removal, or it could be directly captured at, at point source. There are places where it, you know, there are better available alternatives or there may be better available alternatives. Cement may be the most challenging one. So we're most likely to see carbon capture. But before we relegate ourselves to carbon capture, um, there are lots of attempts to make cement in a different way or to use an alternative chemistry to make cement. Can you Describe those a bit and then what their limitations might be. So actually, I would love to do that. But before I do that, I think there's one particular unusual type of carbon capture that might be suited to the cement industry that's worth giving a shout out to, which is that almost all of the cement that we use, we use to make concrete. And concrete is uh, what we call aggregates. So sand, small rocks, things like that. Uh, which are then glued together with cement and water. And one of the few things that we can do to actually utilize CO2 when we capture it instead of storing it is that we can do the same chemical reaction that we did to make the cement. We can do that in reverse and we can fix CO2 back into rocks to make what are called artificial aggregates. So when we, uh, when we capture CO2 from cement plants, we have the option of storing it underground. We can also fix it back into rocks and use those rocks to make concrete, which is the primary thing that we're going to use the cement for anyway. And is that being done today? On a very small scale. Uh, so there's a, uh, there's a small company in Northern California that's trying to develop commercial artificial aggregates called Blue Planet. And there's a few other efforts, but so far it's not widespread. The thing that I love about artificial aggregates is, first of all, this is literally the only chemical reaction that you can get CO2 to do at atmospheric temperature and pressure. When people talk about CO2 utilization, they like to forget that CO2 is a combustion product. So that means you take molecules that have tons of energy stored inside of them, you remove all of that energy, and then the CO2 is what's left over. And if you want to turn your CO2 into big, exciting molecules like the ones that you started with, you have to put more energy back in than all the energy that you got out to make the CO2 in the first place. However, you can turn CO2 into rocks, as I said, without high temperatures, without high pressures. And that's it's not a mechanism directly to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions embedded in concrete, except what it is, is a useful use of the CO2 you capture if you capture the CO2 in the cement making process. You, there's a potential here to recapture the CO2 to permanently fix it into something useful and so it doesn't end up in the atmosphere. But it, you're not changing the fundamental chemistry of how you made the cement in the first place. And aggregates also have the advantage that they're basically the only product that we use, again, in increments of billions of tons. If you want to make a difference for climate change, it has to be at that scale. There's also in the world of carbon utilization, while we're on it, there are some other attempts, some other companies that are utilizing captured CO2, whether captured directly from the cement making process or not, and utilizing it in the process of making cement or concrete, um, thereby reducing the embedded emissions. Companies like Carbon Cure, which recently won the the um, X Prize 
competition for doing exactly that. Can you describe that process and how that's different from what you're describing? Sure. Yeah. So basically what they're doing is they are injecting CO2 into the wet cement before it solidifies. And the total amount of CO2 that goes into the wet cement is not very much. They might be able to capture, you know, a percent or two of the cement that of the CO2 that was emitted to make that cement. However, this process makes the cement stronger faster. So you can get the same amount of structural service from it by with less cement. So you're utilizing a little bit of CO2. You're also reducing your demand for cement to get a foundation for the same size building. Right. So that's what's interesting about it is, is it's less about the CO2 utilization from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective. It's less about the, the amount of CO2 utilized. It's not a way to utilize a ton of CO2, but what it is is a way to utilize less cement for the same structure. And if cement is going to be a big source of greenhouse gas emissions, that actually has a huge impact. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, this is Carbon Cure is a fun example of this, but this is part of like a very broad range of interventions that's available to us under the kind of category of material efficiency. We all know that if we want to achieve green energy, it's going to be a lot easier if we have, if we make more efficient use of our energy, if we reduce our demand for energy per unit of service we consume. Um, And the same goes for these materials. If we can find ways to build our buildings and our infrastructure and make our products in such a way that they work just as well, but with less material, then there's a lot less greenhouse gases that will be emitted. All right. So let's briefly talk about any alternative chemistries, alternative cement making processes that you could use that would emit less greenhouse gas emissions. And then we can jump onto the energy side of the equation. Sure. Yeah. So there are a lot of cool ideas out there for alternative cement chemistries. The big barrier here, well, I guess there's two big barriers here. Big barrier number one is that whatever you're going to do, you have to be able to do it in increments of billions of tons. There aren't that many raw materials out there that are uh, that are as abundant as limestone. So if you're going to make your cement with something besides limestone, you're unlikely to be able to supplant a large portion of the cement that we're using now. There are some really exciting examples, though. There is um, uh, there's a company called Solidia. They have what's called a hydro- uh, carbonation-based cement as opposed to, so it's not water activated, it's CO2 activated. And so they can reduce the total life cycle greenhouse gases for their concrete by 70% or more through a combination of reducing the energy burden, reducing the process emissions, and fixing some of the CO2 back into the concrete at the end. So that's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting company uh, and an interesting process. There are also people who are working on ways of making cement out of other types of calcium-bearing rocks besides limestone. So, you know, there's a lot of rocks. Full Calcium's very abundant. There's a lot of... Um, Rocks that have calcium in other in, in other molecules, most of those require even more energy than limestone-based cement. And so you're like, you trade off lower process emissions for higher energy emissions to try and make that work. Well, so that that's interesting. That's a good segue then into the other side of the equation that the 40% of emissions in the cement making process that comes from 
energy usage and getting that thousand degree C. So theoretically, you use maybe you use something other than limestone. You need more energy, but if your energy is decarbonized, then that would be okay. So I think the sort of predominant pathways toward that that people are discussing are true across lots of industrial sectors that require high heat, which is basically either hydrogen as a feedstock, if it's green hydrogen, or direct electrification. What does that look like in the world of cement? I would throw solar thermal in there too. It's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. Um, But yeah, so direct electrification, I mean, in theory, you can get a heat source, uh, an electric heat source that's very, very hot up to, you know, 1800 C or more, as long as you have a uh, resisting, you know, an, an electric resistance element that won't melt at that temperature. And in theory, you can burn, you know, hydrogen burns at what, like 21C in air and or 2100C in air and 2800C in pure oxygen. So you can get whatever temperature you want by burning hydrogen. So that requires a lot of process engineering that nobody's bothered to do yet. And the reason for that is that uh, both of those energy sources are way more expensive than just burning coal or burning trash uh, under current market conditions and frankly, under a lot of reasonable or a lot of plausible future market conditions too. So it's really, an there's an economic challenge there on for both direct electrification and green hydrogen. It's not actually a technical challenge or they think, I mean, there is a technical challenge. It's not nothing, right? It's a solvable right. technical challenge. Like it's a thing that we totally could do, though we don't know exactly how we would do it now. But I think actually it might help to throw a couple of numbers in here. So here in the US, delivered coal, delivered thermal coal is like 40 bucks a ton. Um, and typical industrial electricity tariffs are like seven cents a kilowatt hour. If you put those both in terms of just straight energy units, like joules, um, so 40 bucks a ton for coal is $2 a gigajoule. Seven cents a kilowatt hour is $20 a gigajoule. Um, and you need about three gigajoules, three or four gigajoules of energy to make a ton of cement. So that means you go from a $7 energy cost per ton of cement to a $70 energy cost per ton of cement under current energy prices. Right. So you need some pretty dramatic cost reductions there. Now, before we sound too dismissive of that, I will say that, you know, seven cents per kilowatt hour, if you're thinking in the context of like new build renewables, which are not 100% capacity factor, that's really high, right? So what the, it seems to me like the unlock if there is one for electrification of cement making, if that were ever to take place, would be extremely cheap zero carbon electricity, like one cent per kilowatt hour type. Plus, uh, you need it to you need to have it at very high load factor, close to one hundred percent of the time, which means you probably either need a mix of resources that you're procuring, or you need energy storage that is also very very cheap that allows you to you know, utilize it when the sun is out or whatever, but still run your cement kiln 100% of the time. Those things would all be good. It's not clear to me that those things are 
more likely to come about than that we just slap a lot of CCS on these facilities and basically say, you know, everyone has to pay the abatement cost. You, you feel the same way about um, hydrogen as well? Like if you had dollar per kilogram green hydrogen, same thing, that wouldn't quite be enough. Dollar per kilogram is still a lot more expensive. And the thing is also like, it's almost, you still have the process emissions. And so unless we're going to change our cement chemistry, you're stuck with the process emissions, which you are going to have to do CCS on. And if you're going to do the CCS already, you may as well do it for all the CO2. And I think the other thing that it's worth mentioning, and this was the, the other kind of big barrier that I was uh, that I mentioned with alternative cement chemistries, is that for obvious reasons, um, people are very small C conservative about their cement. So if you have a great idea for a new cement chemistry um, and you bring that to a contractor or a structural engineer, there's a good chance that the response you're gonna get is like, oh, that's super interesting. Why don't you build your bridge out of it and come back in 40 years and we'll take a look at how the bridge looks and then we'll talk. Um, and so, you know, this is, it's literally a foundational material. Like the problem here is with foundations. And so people are very, very cautious about anything that might change the long-term performance. You know, the, the type of cement we use today, ordinary Portland cement, was, uh, the, the original patent for it was issued in 1824. This is a 200-year-old material. We feel very comfortable with its material performance. And it's going to take a long time to get that level of comfort with alternative cements. The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that specializes in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions manages over 400 megawatts of operational clean energy assets. Cirrus Flex, Smarter Grid Solutions virtual power plant product, optimizes the operating schedules of distributed energy resources, maximizing returns from energy markets and grid flexibility services. Cirrus Flex pulls together mixed distributed energy assets and fleets to the grid and market, delivering on-site and system value to asset owners, operators, aggregators, and traders. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-maximizing virtual power plant solutions offered by Cirrus Flex, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com slash interchange, or just check out the link in the show notes. All right, so let's just then step back for a second, and then we'll move on to, to steel and petrochemicals. But um, I think one of the important questions here in, in all of these sectors is, look, you know, we have solutions. Maybe the solution is just carbon capture in this case. Maybe it's some combination of alternative chemistries or embedded CO2 or whatever. Um, but you know, regardless, there's a suite of solutions out there. Say we were to implement some combination of them. How much would that actually impact the price uh, of cement, right? Because if at the end of the day, if it triples the price of cement and we're going to make billions of tons a year, that's probably untenable unless we're, you know, collectively all going to pay for it from through the government. 
Um, if it impacts the price of cement marginally, then you know maybe that's worth just mandating into action somehow. Yeah. So this is actually, I think this is a really important point um, because people often talk about cement and some of the other industries we're going to talk about as like really hard to decarbonize. And they're like, oh, this is the tough nut to crack. And if you look at it from the perspective of the guy, sometimes a girl, but usually a guy who owns and operates a cement kiln, you can see why it would feel that way. Because let's say the stuff we're talking about, there's $100 a ton abatement cost associated with it. 100 bucks a ton abatement cost doubles the cost of cement. So, you know, if you work in a commodity industry, that is going to feel like a life-threatening uh, difference in price. You know, that's existential for you. But uh, I would like to encourage um, your listeners to, like, look at this through the other end of the telescope. So don't look at it from the perspective of the guy at the top of the supply chain who owns the cement kiln. Look at it from the perspective of the final consumer. Here in the United States, typically the portion of the cost of construction that is, that, that is buying cement is like less than half a percent of the cost of the construction project, not counting land acquisition. So if you're talking about uh, 100 bucks a ton abatement cost, that might double the cost of your cement, but it adds like 0.03%, adds like 0.3% to the cost of your building. Like we're talking about, it adds a couple hundred bucks to the cost of a detached single family home. It adds an amount of like the additional cost from the perspective of the consumer of the finished goods is literally negligible. And this is not just for cement, it's for other commodity industries too. It's for all the industries we're gonna talk about. Same logic applies in for steel, for plastic, for other basic materials, because the materials are not a big portion of the cost of the finished goods. And so the, the problem, when I think about this from like the kind of the energy system perspective and the overall climate problem perspective, the problem is not how do we afford to decarbonize these industries, because actually we can totally afford it. The problem is how do you efficiently spread out that cost over the entire supply chain and transfer it to the final consumers, as opposed to just like lumping it all on the guy who owns the cement kiln, who who is the one person in this system who genuinely can't afford it. <laughs> Right. All right. Well, let's, we'll we'll come back to that. I think once we get through these sectors, because that's part of the question of how do we create demand pull for these new technologies or for carbon capture or whatever it might be. But let's uh, let's first move on from cement to the other biggest culprit, which is steelmaking, um, and one that is near and dear to my heart. Full disclosure: we are investors in Boston Metal, so we have made one bet in decarbonization of steelmaking, which we're very excited about. Um, but but there are multiple pathways to uh, to decarbonizing steel. So again, same question to start. Where do the emissions come from in the steel making process? Yeah. So steel is the highest emitting industry in the world. It's like three and a half gigatons of CO2 per year for making steel, which if that so if the steel industry were a country, it would be the third highest emitting country 
in the world after the U.S. and China ahead of India. Um, so steel is huge. And I also love steel, not because I'm invested in any particular steel company, but just because steel is great. Like you can use it for everything. And we do. But so again, with steel, you have the energy emissions and the process emissions. And the energy emissions are about just making it hot and making it hot enough to do the chemical reactions that you want. The process emissions are like, so we make steel from iron ore. Iron ore is iron oxide, which you may be more familiar with by its common name of rust. Everybody knows that rust does not have the valuable material properties that steel has. And so what you need to do is to take your iron oxide, strip off the oxygen atoms, and make metallic iron. And doing that, so that first of all, that requires a ton of energy. And second of all, what we usually do is we take coal, we burn it to provide that energy, and we also that we also are using the coal as a more attractive place for those oxygen atoms to go. So you start with carbon and iron oxide, and you end up with iron and carbon dioxide. Um, that's how we make what's called primary steel, which is steel made from iron ore. And then there's secondary steel, which is recycled. And so that requires a bunch of energy to melt it and form it and process it. But it doesn't require nearly as much energy because you don't have to make the, the, the metal in the first place. It's metal and metal out. Right. So sometimes when people talk about decarbonizing steel, the first thing that they start with is more recycling. Which we've increased, we've we've done pretty well at actually globally at, at recycling more and more steel over time. And you know the challenge there is it's there's you know a ceiling on how much you can how much new steel you can uh, generate from recycled steel because there's only so much steel getting recycled. Then we have an ever growing need for more and more steel. So my sense is that recycling is definitely a component of the solution, but it is never going to be the solution. So I think there's two important aspects of recycling. I, I agree with everything you just said. There's two important aspects that I would add. Um, so particularly in higher income countries, we do quite a good job of uh, recovering end of life scrap steel. Uh, here in the US, it's north of 80% of steel at the end of its life is recovered and recycled. And probably 90% is like the practical maximum. You're never gonna get 100%. Uh, so we're doing a pretty good job there. Um, problem number one, or cons consideration number one, is that our systems for collecting and processing all of that scrap yield a much lower quality steel than uh, primary steel. And so what we do is, you know, there's a few applications that that lower quality steel is okay for. Um, and if we want to use it for something that has a more demanding specification, we like mix in a bunch of primary steel to bring your recycled steel up to spec. Um, or if you're making something from primary steel and it's like for a less demanding application, you can always throw in some scrap to, you know, save some money. But so as the ratio of recycled steel to primary steel goes up over time as we have more and more scrap available to us to use, we're gonna get to a point where these quality issues are gonna start to become a serious problem. And that might be actually as soon as the early 2030s where we have to 
landfill scrap steel because we don't have enough primary steel available to mix in to bring it up to the quality that we need it to be. So recycling methods, either through you know sorting and social systems for how we recover it, or through new technologies that can yield higher quality recycled steel are gonna be more and more important over time. The other thing is, again, with the material efficiency, um, we can provide the same level of services with considerably less steel, in which case a much larger percentage of it would be possible to do through the scrap we've already got. Right. Okay. So recycling and material efficiency are, are undeniably components of decarbonizing steel making, but have their, have their ceilings. Um, let's talk about the other ideas. I think the one that probably has yielded the most certainly the most announcements and probably the most activity over the past couple of years, predominantly in Europe, I would say more than anywhere else is hydrogen. Um, you want to talk about what hydrogen in steelmaking looks like and where it hits its limits as well? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, conceptually, this is pretty straightforward. And I think one of the reasons why hydrogen reduction is so attractive is that this is definitely the smallest increment of new technology that we need to make primary steel with no fossil fuels, with zero CO2 emissions, um, or near zero CO2 emissions. And so basically the idea here, you know, we talked a second ago about you take iron oxide and carbon, turn it into iron and carbon dioxide. The idea here, you take iron oxide and hydrogen, you turn it into iron and H2O, also known as water. So here your process emissions are water vapor instead of CO2. Um, and there's a big project that is uh, already under construction in Sweden called Hybrid to do this. There are other projects that have been announced. There's a bunch of pilot projects at different, almost every big steel mill in Europe at this point has some kind of little hydrogen pilot that they're running. Um, so, you know, this is a, this is a good option and we're almost certainly going to want to do some of it. There are limitations to using hydrogen though. Um, one of which is that as I understand it, it requires higher grade iron ores. Um, so you can't use all iron ore that we use in steel making through a hydrogen based process. There's some limitation there. Um, also you need, you know. This is where the sort of like question around hydrogen, the broader question around hydrogen is going to arrive. Like you need enormous volumes of zero carbon cheap hydrogen to make it work, which we may well have in certain places. And this is why I think Europe is kind of the epicenter of this activity in the steelmaking context is, is to the extent that we're going to have a hydrogen backbone with sufficient storage and transmission and all that kind of stuff. Um, it may well be in those regions, but you know, limitations there as well. Yeah, I'm less concerned about the ore quality issues. There's a lot you can do to beneficiate ore if you are feeling motivated. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, certainly we're going to start out with the higher quality ores. And one of the reasons why the Swedes are the leaders here is that they have really good iron ore. Um, and so, you know, they have a combination of very high grade iron ore and very cheap hydropower that allows them to make very cheap green hydrogen that makes this, you know, uniquely attractive in Sweden. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to become more and more attractive everywhere. 
So this seems to me like it will definitely be part of the mix. The question is whether it'll be all of the mix. Right. And then there are a couple of other alternatives as well that are um, being pursued in the steel context. One is, as we mentioned, you know, Boston Metal would be another example, which is a direct electrification process. Their process is called molten oxide electrolysis. I'll let you explain it because you'll probably do better than me. Um, and then, of course, there is carbon capture as well in in the steel uh, context rather than in the, in the cement context. Absolutely. So, I mean, from a physics perspective, direct electrolysis is much more attractive than hydrogen because if you start with the electricity and you convert it into hydrogen and then you use the hydrogen to get energy for your steel making, you're going to lose a bunch of energy in those conversions compared to just using the electricity directly to make your steel. So as I said, from a physics perspective, we love direct electrolysis. And it's worth mentioning that direct electrolysis is how we make aluminum, how we've made aluminum for more than a century. Um, and so there are definitely precedent here. And molten oxide electrolysis is pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, you know, you start with iron ore, you melt it, and then you have electrolysis in your molten oxide. There are other models that people are working on too. Most of them are at earlier technology stages. I know people who are working on uh, low temperature electrolysis that would happen with in solid state instead of having it be molten and melted. So the question is uh, gonna come down to, first of all, how much do you pay for your electricity? Just like we were talking about, how much do you pay for your hydrogen? And also, is it going to end up being sufficiently valuable that the hydrogen reduction kind of fits more nicely into existing steel industry processes and infrastructure? That will provide some value. Will it provide enough value to overcome the clear energetic advantage of direct electrolysis? Only time will tell. On CCS, I think that's a that's potentially a really good option in some contexts. The thing that's worth knowing is that if you're doing a CCS retrofit to an existing steel plant, it's going to be really, really hard to capture a high portion of the CO2. Because at a steel plant, there are a couple of sources of lots and lots of CO2, like your blast furnace, your basic oxygen furnace, your uh, Coke oven. Um, and so those you can kind of cost effectively imagine a retrofit for how you would collect all that CO2. But then you have tons of like process heaters and little things that are spread out all over your plant that are like little bits of CO2 here, little bits of CO2 there. It's going to be very expensive to try and retrofit to capture all of those little bits of CO2, which collectively at many plants add up to more than half of all the CO2 at the facility. So if you want to do CCS with high capture rates, you're probably, you're almost certainly talking about purpose-built facilities. You designed the plant in order to get the high capture rate CCS. So again, you're talking about building a new steel mill. Right. Which is sort of the, you know, there's, I guess there's an argument that that's like the last thing that you want to do if you have available alternatives, right? The idea of CCS is particularly suited to what do we do with all these operating facilities that you know, have a useful life that could be decades into the future. We don't want to shut them down because they're not fully depreciated assets. And so we need some solution. That's where CCS makes a lot of sense. In a lot of these cases, on the other hand, that sounds like it's where it's kind of least valuable. 
at least for for steel. Yeah. So I mean, I think you may there may be cases where your steel mill is so valuable that you really want to keep it operating and you're cool with getting a decade at 50% capture and so that it's worth it to do the retrofits. Um, but I don't I don't know that that's going to be a common set of circumstances. And I think the motivation would be that you know most of these facilities, and particularly most steel mills, the reason that they're in the place that they're in right now is because there is cheap access to the necessary energy resources. Like, why are all the integrated steel mills in the U.S. on the Great Lakes? Because they can get high-quality metallurgical coal from Appalachia delivered by barge on inland waterways, and it's, like, very reliable and very cheap. Um, and all the steel mills that were in other parts of the country have gone out of business because it's they, their energy access is less cost-effective. Um, and so if you really want to maintain a steel economy in a place where it exists today, then that's a case where it might be worth it to design a special facility to get really high capture rates for your CCS. Yep. All right, let's move on to petrochemicals and plastics. So starting with the same question, where do we emit greenhouse gases when we are making plastics? So the plastics industry, and I would say actually the chemical industry broadly, is a lot more diverse than the already pretty diverse steel and cement industries. So uh, I, I remember a couple of years back, a, um, a colleague who works for BASF, the German chemical giant, she, she explained to me that BASF makes about 100,000 products. So they sell 100,000 different chemicals to different people around the world. And she was like, yeah, we have an 80-20 rule about our greenhouse gas emissions. 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions come from 20 products. Not 20% of the products, 20 products. <laughs> and those are basically like these fundamental chemicals that are the ingredients that they use to make all of the other more exciting chemicals that they sell for higher prices down the line. And it comes back to the same thing we were talking about before. It's like, what are you making hundreds of millions of tons of? That's the thing that is responsible for a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So can you give a couple examples of what those fundamental products are? Biggest ones are going to be ammonia, which is the main ingredient in fertilizers, and ethylene and propylene, which are the two main, the two most important ingredients in plastics. The chemical industry, like three quarters of the emissions from the chemical industry are for fertilizers and plastics. Other big ones are like methanol, chloralkali, BTX, which was benzene, toluene, and xylene, those small aromatics. But again, it's it's basically, it's like the chemicals that are the ingredients for all the other chemicals, mostly fertilizer and plastic. All right. So let's do uh, two minutes on each of those two then, fertilizer and plastic. So ammonia is an interesting one because ammonia is in the conversation around hydrogen in a separate context. We're talking about creating green, more ammonia, green ammonia, because ammonia can be a hydrogen carrier. It's difficult to transport hydrogen. So we're talking about using ammonia, either using it directly to fuel things like ships um, and maritime applications, or just using or converting hydrogen to ammonia to transport it, to turn it back into hydrogen, to use it for some purpose. Uh, so it, it feels based on that, like maybe the predominant 
proposed solution in for ammonia is probably going to be hydrogen. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, the most, the biggest chunk of the emissions from making ammonia today is making hydrogen. So you, most of the hydrogen we make, we make from fossil fuels. Um, and so you emit a lot of CO2 when you make hydrogen from fossil fuels. And then you use the, and then you use the hydrogen and you also need a bunch of energy, high temperatures, high pressures, hydrogen, uh, uh, nitrogen, you get ammonia. Um, yeah, and so ammonia is something that we talk about, as you said, as an energy carrier, in addition to as a product itself. Um, but, you know, the biggest use that we have for ammonia as a product is fertilizer. There are alternatives in the fertilizer context to greenhouse gas emissions reduction, ranging from you know, there's some like synthetic biology approaches that reduce the need for fertilizer, for ammonia-based fertilizer. In the first place, there are alternatives. Ammonia itself is not the ideal fertilizer. It just happens to be the one that we've scaled up the most. And so there are, you know, other ways to fix nitrogen and soil. And um, so, you know, it, it feels to me like there's a supply side solution, which is just like make ammonia decarbonized. And then there's a bunch of demand side solutions, which are you know, reduce emissions from fertilizer, even if you are still using ammonia or use something other than ammonia. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. The basic requirement for reactive nitrogen in our agricultural systems is not going to go away. We definitely could do a better job of inputting that more carefully. And that would actually have a double greenhouse gas benefit because it would both reduce the CO2 and fugitive methane and other types of emissions from producing the ammonia. It would also reduce the amount of N2O that off-gasses from our agricultural fields, which is another really important non-CO2 greenhouse gas. So I think the kind of precision application of reactive nitrogen is a great strategy for reducing these emissions. It's not easy. But it's a great idea. And then, the, as you say, when we talk about making clean nitrogen or clean ammonia, that's like almost 100% overlap with the conversation about clean hydrogen. Right, right. Okay. And then um, the other big one being things like ethylene, where there, yeah, I've seen a few interesting approaches to ethylene. There's uh, a CO2 to ethylene pathway where you see companies like Opus 12 uh, maybe going after. There's a company in Canada that's really early stage that's going after something like that. There's uh, a company called Semvita Factory, which has a bioethylene process they're trying to make. So it feels like there, there's some alter... It's not a hydrogen solution. It is um, a variety of other chemical processes to get ethylene that is not using the the same steam cracking process we traditionally use now. Yeah. So our basic set of options here are, again, CCS, then CO2 utilization, which actually does require, in most instances, lots of hydrogen because you need to make hydrocarbons. So you need hydrogen in your ethylene and propylene have lots of hydrogen in them. And then uh, biomass feedstocks. Uh, so your basic problem with the latter two, with CO2 utilization and biomass feedstocks is energy availability. So the, the continent-wide trade association for the European chemicals industry, a few years back, they did a study in which they, among other things, they said, look, everyone's talking about CO2 utilization for chemical synthesis, 
Like, let's get serious about what that actually means. And so they said, for us to produce the basket of chemicals in the volume that we are currently producing them, and to start with CO2 and water, and add electricity, and make these chemicals under some reasonable assumptions about process efficiency, what that would require for the European chemical industry is 1,900 terawatt hours of clean electricity per year. So... For comparison, the IEA estimates that in their Paris compliance scenario for the entire continent of Europe, for all purposes in 2050, there will be 3,400 terawatt hours of clean electricity available. Um, So more than half of all the electricity for the entire continent would be required to make our current basket of chemicals. Right. And then you have a similar challenge in the biomass feedstock context, which is actually the challenge with a lot of like biomass based most things, sustainable aviation fuel, right? Same thing. It's like it can work and the economics can sometimes look reasonably compelling depending on your source of biomass, the process that you're using. At the end of the day, it usually seems to come down to is there enough waste biomass feedstock available to you to make the thing you want to make? Yeah, this is the in every sector with biomass. It's just like, is there going to be enough? And so, you know, we, you know, everybody, there's going to be way more people who want that biomass and bioenergy than there is going to be biomass and bioenergy that can be sustainably produced. So we have to be really cautious about how we allocate it. People also talk about using biocharcoal in biocoke instead of coal in steelmaking. Problem is, Our total coal consumption in the steel industry is like 29 exajoules of coal per year. All of the biomass that's available for energy use on the entire planet for all purposes currently is like 55 exajoules. So again, one industry is going to claim half of all of the energy resources if we actually want to use the biomass. Um, So we just have to be, we have to be very cautious about how we allocate that biomass and For the plastics, the way that we exercise that caution is by doing a much better job than we currently do at recycling our plastic. In theory, that, you know, most plastics are infinitely recyclable. In in practice, maybe 10% of plastic in the U.S. actually gets recycled. Probably not even that. All right. So stepping way back then. My takeaway across all these sectors, and this has been sort of how I felt about it as I've been exploring them, looking for cool investments in all these spaces, is there's no silver bullet in any of these markets, with the exception of if you really just want to blanket everything with carbon capture. Um, and even there, as you said, in the steelmaking context, actually, it's it's pretty challenging, probably also true in petrochemicals. There's, and so, there's like a lot of versions of CCS. So it's not a silver bullet. It's again, like CCS is a bunch of different things. It's a silver buckshot. Um, Yeah. So there's no real silver bullet, but there there is a basket of what look like options that could be potentially pretty attractive, uh, especially if we get the mechanisms in place to start scaling them up now and driving down costs and figuring out how to deploy them at scale and fit them into the existing processes and so on. So I guess the final sort of set of uh, questions is... How do we create a market for these technologies? I mean, this is your day job at, at ClimateWorks is figuring out exactly that. So, you know, if you could boil it down to something relatively simple, what do you think are the most important facets of creating demand for a decarbonized 
plastics or steel or cement? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it is true. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and I mean, my like my simple but I think robust analysis is that if nobody wants to buy clean commodities, nobody's going to make clean commodities. And because, as we were talking about before, the abatement costs can be a high portion of the cost of the material, but is an extremely low portion of the cost of the finished goods, that market pull dynamic is really powerful. The biggest way that we are working on making this is around public procurement, a set of policies that we call buy clean. And the reason that we focus on that is that in the, U in the US, half of all cement is purchased with taxpayer dollars and about a fifth of all steel. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because like, look around, a lot of the concrete goes into your infrastructure. It goes into roads and runways and aqueducts and things that are built with taxpayer dollars. And so if we want to transform the market, we have to transform the public market, the public sector market. And that has been very successful in other sectors at pulling the new alternatives into the market. So we all remember with gratitude what the renewable portfolio standards, the early renewable portfolio standards did for the wind and solar industry is, you know, a relatively small quantity of very expensive wind and solar was like we needed guaranteed purchasers for that to get those industries over the hump to where they could be more attractive to the market broadly. And we would like the public sector to play a similar role for building materials. Yeah, there have also been, um, one thing I've been finding interesting is there have been these these buyers consortia starting to spin up. In the, in the steel context, for example, there's one called Steel Zero, which is a bunch of uh, companies that buy a lot of steel coming together to amass their collective purchasing power to commit to, um, to purchasing green steel by a certain date or a certain volume of it or something like that. Do you think that can, that does that supplement the, um, the public sector role? Is it totally independent? How do you think about that? Absolutely. No, I think that that's really valuable. And I think that there's a, there's a couple of industries that are likely to be particularly high leverage here for steel. I look particularly at the automotive industry, uh, where you have a lot of consumer exposure. You have a lot of consumers who want to buy green products. And the steel that the automotive companies are using is by and large very high grade steel. Um, it's really high quality. So that's like the high value added end of the market. That's the place that you start. Um, and they are, and, and there are a number of the of big auto companies that have full supply chain decarbonization commitments. Volkswagen is one, Toyota is another. A lot of these companies have, in terms of their actual actions, they've been much more focused on their tailpipe emissions than on their supply chain emissions, but they have made the commitments and they're in theory ready to move. I think what we need here is like, we need a set of committed buyers. Those can be public sector buyers or private sector buyers. We need a set of steel companies who actually wanna move and not don't just wanna talk about moving, but actually wanna move. And then there's still this big chunk of technology risk for things like hydrogen reduction, molten oxide electrolysis, and other alternative industrial processes. And I think ultimately, like we need public money to buy down that technology risk. Um, so that those are kind of the three uh, legs of the stool. And we're going to need all three of them to get us over the hump 
to a world where you can like just call up your supplier and order green commodities. Rebecca, this has been an incredibly informative and for me at least, deeply fun conversation. Thank you so much for for being here. Absolutely. I love talking about this stuff. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, thanks so much. Rebecca Dell is the director of the industry program at the Climate Works Foundation. What did you think of the conversation? Was it wonky enough for you? Tell us what you thought. Give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Tweet at us at at Interchange Show or email us at contact at postscriptaudio.com. We love getting your feedback and your ideas for new shows. Do you know somebody who also wonks out on industrial greenhouse gas emissions? Send the podcast their way. We, we love when new folks find it. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan. This is The Interchange. <laughs>